From the State Capitol, WFSU Public Media brings you Capitol Report. Florida's economy bounced back during 2022. Then why are so many jobs in the state still going unfilled? We had the great resignation. Now I think we've got the great reconciliation. Also this week, on the heels of some new Florida laws regarding what should and shouldn't be taught in public schools, a growing number of teachers are calling it quits. They were trying to see if I was teaching critical race theory. And when they said that, I did laugh because, again, I was teaching 10th grade, not doing literary theory with 10th graders. We'll also revisit the results of Florida's midterm elections. And if you're a Democrat, you might want to have some tissues handy. On the eve of this New Year's Eve, we'll look at some of the top stories from the year soon to be passed. I'm Tom Flanagan, and this is Capitol Report. Even the dangerous combination of a pandemic, inflation, and political firestorms couldn't keep the Sunshine State down in 2022. Tourism numbers bounced back nicely. State tax revenues, boosted at least in part by federal spending, hit all-time highs. And the jobless rate fell below 3 percent, which is generally considered full employment by economists. Yet something still felt a bit off in this recovery. Help wanted signs remained in the windows and websites of all kinds of private and public organizations. How come? Gina Jordan examined the situation in this report. All businesses, all industries in our state are are growing. Um, They're competing for qualified talent and they're having to find ways to compete. And that in some cases includes raising wages um, and includes finding other ways to incentivize their employees. Adrian Johnston says the market is looking much like it did prior to the pandemic in terms of jobless numbers. She's the chief economist at the Florida Department of Economic Opportunity, which released the report. It shows many people are leaving their jobs, confident they'll find work somewhere else. So, for example, we saw that professional and business services continues month over month to add more jobs. Um, That is in the technical services area, which tends to be Uh, more high paying. We also see a lot of job growth in financial activities, which again is a high paying industry. In particular, the report shows workers are shifting away from hospitality jobs in hotels and restaurants in favor of more money in manufacturing, construction and warehousing. As businesses are growing and adding jobs that need to be filled, a lot of people are still out of the workforce by choice. Some are creating their own work. Yeah, there's a lot of leverage. You don't even really need to have the background that you used to have. You don't need a college education for some of these jobs. You don't need experience in the particular industry. You, you, they're willing to train you. Professor Wayne Hockwarder in the Florida State University College of Business says shortages can be found everywhere, from fast food restaurants to doctor's offices. And short-staffed companies are adding responsibilities for the workers they do have. He calls it the bucket of misery. Frankly, right now, the world, irrespective of jobs is taking a lot out of us. I think the mentality is, okay, after this crisis, which one's the next one? Okay, we had COVID, yuck. Now we got inflation, yuck. Now we're in the middle of a war situation, yuck. Now we're in a political campaign, yuck. A series of stimulus checks and higher unemployment payouts during the pandemic gave families a boost. But Hockwater says widespread job vacancies are about more than money. We had the great resignation. Now I think we've got the great reconciliation, which is, okay, let me take a pause here because the government gave me some money to pause. 
what do I really want to do with my life? What do I really want to get out of it? And how much do I want to commit to work? Aside from incentives like higher pay and more paid time off, Hawkwater says bosses need to get better at handling their employees' work-life balance. What options do we have for child care? What options do we have for maybe mental health days? Companies are going to have to get more engaged in the non-work aspects of life. And if that doesn't lure employees back to those companies, Hawkwater says there will be consequences. Their desperation is getting them to head in different directions. And one direction is we can't count on people anymore, so we're going to automate everything. You'll be forced to order either online or through our kiosk. We're going to go the technology route rather than the people route because the people route is very unpredictable. While workers are feeling confident, the National Federation of Independent Businesses says business owners are less optimistic. Many don't have enough employees, and now they're having to raise their prices due to inflation. I'm Gina Jordan. Education remains a very big deal in Florida, and the state's present governor, Ron DeSantis, has moved the education needle even further. His priorities, as adopted by the legislature, include prohibitions against certain kinds of subject matter being included in not just the formal public school curricula, but even informal classroom discussion. On the heels of this year's lawmaking session, in which those restrictions became law, Sarah Mueller found a growing number of the state's classroom teachers were considering new career fields as a consequence. Megan Grant taught English at Wakala High School until the end of 2021. She says she left after being placed on leave while the district investigated her for allegedly teaching critical race theory. A white male student said one of Grant's assignments made him feel uncomfortable. Basically, they were trying to see if I was teaching critical race theory. And when they said that, I did laugh because, again, I was teaching 10th grade not doing literary theory with 10th graders, just trying to teach them tone and mood. This is a poem that I've taught several times. The poem that got Grant in trouble was On the Subway, which discusses white privilege. The State Board of Education banned the teaching of critical race theory in June 2021. CRT, as it's called, is an academic framework that examines how institutions perpetuate racism. It's usually taught in graduate programs, but it's become a catch-all for some who believe any discussion of race and racism is divisive. Grant says school officials questioned her about content related to race and gender. It seemed like those were the trigger words. They asked me, like, what is this about? Okay, well, we read this poem that's about racial profiling. We read this poem about a girl who's growing up. But because it was a girl, like about gender, apparently that was a trigger. Grant says while the school district did not find she was teaching CRT, she was no longer allowed to create her own lesson plans. She now teaches in the Leon County School District. Wakulla school officials did not respond to requests for comment. Grant's experience in Wakulla came before a new law banning teaching race and gender-related topics that could make a group of people feel guilt or shame for actions committed in the past by other members of that group. Another new law recently in effect bans talk of sexual orientation and gender identity in primary grades. 
It also requires parents to be told of their children's requests to use different pronouns. Well, there's no doubt that a lot of what's happening right now, again, is based on confusion and chaos. And, and second of all, it is having a chilling effect on what is discussed and, and taught in schools. That's Andrew Spar, president of the Florida Education Association. It's the state's largest teachers union. The parental rights law, coupled with the anti-CRT law, and the lack of guidance from the Florida Department of Education has each of Florida's school districts making up their own policies. Several Florida school boards are being sued for changing their LGBTQ guidelines and removing similar material from their libraries and classrooms in response. Leon County School District Superintendent Rocky Hanna says teachers are worried they could be sued for saying the wrong thing. It's now scared our teachers. They don't know what can they say, what can't they say. If I make a child feel bad, are they going to sue me? Am I protected? If they sue me, I don't make a lot of money. You know, they're coming after my family. So we already have a, a teacher shortage. We have a teacher shortage crisis. This is only going to exacerbate that situation. Spar says the pressure on teachers is driving up vacancies across the state. There are more than 9,000 empty teaching and support positions for the upcoming school year. Spar blames the political agenda. He says Governor Ron DeSantis has injected into the public school system. This constant demeaning of the profession. And again, when the governor goes around the state saying teachers are teaching kids to hate cops, which is not true, or teachers are teaching sex education in K-3-3, which is not true. And he knows it, right? And, and when he goes around the state saying teachers are teaching kids to hate white people, not true. And the governor knows it. The governor says he's trying to protect kids and the parents who may not agree with what he sees as the so-called woke ideology regarding race and gender. We're not going to have some first grader be told that, you know, yeah, your parents named you Johnny, you were born a boy, but maybe you're really a girl. Meanwhile, Megan Grant says she's happy working in the Leon County School District, but she's concerned about the impact the new restrictions on race, gender, and sexual identity will have on her former students when they venture beyond county lines. I assume that, you know, students will leave Wakala eventually, even if it's just to like visit. And how are they going to be with other people if they can't handle reading about other people? Compounding fears among teachers is an impending clash between state and federal law. The Florida Department of Education is telling local districts to ignore federal guidance that requires schools to let kids play on sports teams that align with their gender identity. The agency also says districts do not have to let students use bathrooms that correspond with their gender identity. I'm Sarah Mueller. Coming up on our end of year Capitol report, while Democrats nationwide managed to avoid a bloodbath in this year's midterm elections, the same did not hold true in Florida. You see a massive turnout disparity and that is the biggest driver. And that's not being driven by the economy. And where does all the crazy stuff we see on the internet come from? Sometimes it comes from us. He said it's interesting, maybe it is interesting. He said it's true, maybe it is true. And I think we all underestimate how many people we influence.
Last month's midterm election turned out surprisingly well for Democrats nationally. Even with Republican gains, the party didn't lose as badly as many had expected. But in Florida, the blue team took a drubbing, losing every statewide race and so many state House and Senate seats that Republicans will have a legislative supermajority, meaning the party has enough votes to pass whatever laws and budget proposals it wants. Lynn Hatter reports the losses aren't new to Florida Democrats, who've been out of power for more than two decades, but this year's losses are especially devastating. Democrats were already bracing for losses going into Tuesday. Former Democratic State Representative Dick Batchelor says what surprised him was the scale of those defeats, especially the difference in the gubernatorial race where Governor Ron DeSantis beat Democratic Congressman Charlie Crist by 19 points. He won for election four years ago at 34,000 votes. Uh, This time he won uh, 1.5 million votes Mm -hmm. and certainly has a lot of money less than his war chest for whatever his future ambitions might want to be. DeSantis' future ambition is speculated to include a presidential bid. The writing was clear to Democrats less than two hours after the polls closed, with fellow Democratic consultant Kevin Kate tweeting out that, at this point, a no-party-affiliated candidate would have a better shot at being elected governor than a Democrat. He also noted the party needs to reset or, quote, go extinct. For John Osmond, the longest-serving Democratic National Committee member in state history, this is likely the year Democrats do go extinct in Florida in terms of political influence. Florida is not a swing state. It is a red state. It might be uh, not a pink. It's more red than that, but it's not a blazing fire engine red uh, state. We got uh, a lot of work to do if we want to make it more competitive. Democrats were out-campaigned, out-fundraised, out-spent, and out-messaged, says Democratic State Senator Chevron Jones of Miami. Jones is now one of the few members of his party remaining in the chamber. But I think we walked into a mess around and find out situation. Democrats have been resetting for the better part of the last decade. This time around, the losses are compounded due to newly redrawn legislative and congressional seats, which heavily favored Republicans, a process directly influenced by Governor DeSantis. But for Jones, Democrats have a big messaging issue, especially among their base, Black and Hispanic voters. He says the party has taken these voters for granted for way too long. And lackluster turnout among Black voters, coupled with Hispanics moving toward Republicans, is an ongoing problem. How do you go to a community and ask for their vote and support when they don't even have a job, when they can't even uh, pay their rent? where they are probably living or sleeping on the couch in, in their in a relative's house. Or say individuals have all of that, but they have not heard from us all year. But all of a sudden, we parachute ourselves into these communities and say, we've been here for you. No, you haven't. For Matt Isbell, a democratically aligned data consultant, black turnout is a major concern that impacted several races from North Florida to South Florida, where even Democrats who had the numbers to win, like now former state Senator Loran Osley, ended up losing to Republicans. Turnout was so much lower in the black and Caribbean areas than it was in the Cuban areas, the white Coral Gables areas, the Jewish retiree areas. 
you see a massive turnout disparity, and that is the biggest driver. And that's not being driven by the economy. The economy does not cause unique turnout disparities where one side completely tanks, especially, again, when we're not seeing that happen nationwide. This is all about resources. They're going to claim whatever they want. Oh, this, this, this. This is about resources. That money is directly tied to power and influence and winning, which Democrats don't have and haven't done, to the point where even the National Party chose to spend its money elsewhere this cycle. Still, Jones is not quite ready to write Florida off for Democrats in the future. He believes, though it may not look it, Florida is still a swing state and that one day Democrats can win if they can manage to rebuild their house, which he admits has been burned completely down. We have to turn out our people. And the only way you do that is through engagement, is through empowerment, and is doggone sure, making sure that you're giving people something to vote for, not just something to vote against. But for the next two years, Democrats will find themselves shut out of major decision-making unless they can find ways to sympathetic Republican ears. I'm Lynn Hatter in Tallahassee. The voter turnout problem was particularly acute amongst voters of color, particularly African-Americans. Some are even saying this is part of a trend. As Margie Menzel reports, one group is admitting failure and forging ahead. As Election Day loomed, U.S. Congressman Al Lawson convened elected officials and church leaders for a souls-to-the-polls push on Tallahassee's south side. Mayor John Daly blanketed the area with billboards and sign waivers. But the turnout was disheartening, said City Commissioner Curtis Richardson on election night. And at my own precinct, where at 2.30 this afternoon only 200 people had voted. Uh, And so, and I know that there has been extensive outreach in the African-American community, uh, uh, telephone calls, flyers, uh, people but polling in the, actually going through the community, knocking on doors. Bethel AME Church on Orange Avenue, Richardson's precinct, ended up with 716 votes, counting early voting and mail-ins. That's also where Lawson, who lost his bid for re-election, spoke. He told community leaders that without an African-American representing them in Congress, their issues would get short shrift. It was much the same throughout South City, while in northeast Tallahassee, the predominantly white precincts were drawing voters by the thousands. Although his mayoral candidate won, Richardson wasn't happy with the black turnout. It just seems like it's been very difficult to generate interest uh, in this midterm election when there are so many issues on the ballot that negatively impact the African-American community. Reverend R.B. Holmes, pastor of Bethel Missionary Baptist Church, said the moderate and progressive wings of the Democratic Party had undermined each other. I think that they spent so much time in a negative uh, campaign and called, called themselves progressive, and they took the eyes off the prize. And instead of 
being enthusiastic, trying to encourage people to vote, they were encouraging folk to, to vote against their own party. Neighborhood activist Talithia Edwards said the candidates hadn't done enough for black communities between elections. Our material conditions aren't changing very much, and we're seeing a lot of lean on the African-American communities for our vote. But in turn, once that election is over and the polls are closed, we need to see a lot more action um, in those areas. Bruce Strobel is the founder and chair of Tallahassee Alert, which stands for African-American Local Election Review Team. The group researched the local candidates in this election cycle and endorsed those backed by 70 percent of their participants. Strobel says the group knew going in that the black vote would be, quote, incredibly important. We have been looking at what was going on in the previous elections, and we saw particularly that as white voters locally are divided, uh, the black vote becomes a swing vote within that community. And ultimately, when people feel entitled to the black vote, like they don't think that there's any work they have to do for it, there's less political capital in the black community. They, they So we wanted to uh, start to push that idea that you're going to have to what is going to be done for these black communities um, so that you earn that vote. Strobel says social trust is at an all-time low. People just don't have much faith in political collective efficacy, um, in the political system itself. They don't believe that anyone elected is going to do anything. I went out tirelessly talking to young people, talking to students, like, what is it going to take to get you out here to vote? And they're like, the system is corrupt, and there's nothing that we could do. And I, I understand them, but I still feel we can't put down the vote. Although Leon County's active Democratic voters outnumber Republicans roughly two to one, the GOP turnout was 69 percent, while the Democrats managed 58 percent. You see, the Republican turnout was significantly higher, right? Um, but we're going to see declines in our turnout, or this what I'm projecting based off how it looks as this trend continues. In the last midterm election, in 2018, former Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum, an African-American known for his speaking skills, was the Democratic gubernatorial nominee. The turnout at FAMU that year was just over 1,800. But in many South City precincts, the vote totals weren't much different from this year. Strobel says the role of Tallahassee Alert is to hold candidates accountable for their entire political lives— not just their commercials and flyers as election day nears. As we look at just being better organized and more politically mature, these are things we want to guard ourselves against. And we have to it put more critical thinking into our voting process. We're not just voting because someone has shown up right now during election time and said, look, I'm here for you. I'm doing these things for you. We want to track your entire record and keep that before the community. Strobel says those who feel disenfranchised cannot give up, that it takes education and understanding to navigate the political system. For now, he says, the black vote has enough power to be sought after, but not enough to be earned. He intends to change that. I'm Margie Menzel. You're listening to Capital Report from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. Finally this year... The rise of the Internet has made the knowledge of the world readily available to pretty much everyone. 
But those knowledge seekers also need to be aware of how they're searching for information. Here's Al Tompkins, a senior broadcast and online faculty member for the Pointer Institute for Media Studies, a nonprofit journalism and research organization based in St. Petersburg, Florida. What exactly are you Googling? If, for example, you Google coronavirus facts, you're going to get factual links. So you're going to get links to the CDC and the World Health Organization and Johns Hopkins and things like that. But if you Google coronavirus truth, you're going to get a very different return because it's going to assume you want to know about conspiracy theories and other things that may not be factual or statistical, but instead theoretical. Have you ever noticed how if you look online for information about a specific product, say a new washing machine, that suddenly you're seeing a tidal wave of pop-up ads for washing machines? Tompkins says that's just the way the Internet and social media platforms work. All of these services are trying to figure out what is it that this person wants. And mostly, they're not in sort of the equating business to figure out what's the best answer. They're not trying to give you the best answer. They're trying to give you what you ask for, and they're trying to pair you up with your past history. Which is how online searches for additional information automatically narrow the sources of that information more and more. So if a person has been looking at sites that promote unproven alternative treatments for COVID-19, pretty soon that's about all they're seeing to the exclusion of facts about therapies with greater acceptance and documented effectiveness. And Tompkins says that misinformation quickly spreads like, you guessed it, a virus. If you believe that something is real and true and you pass it on, it's a signal to people who know you and respect you and like you. They'll go, well, I mean, he, he said it's interesting. Maybe it is interesting. He said it's true. Maybe it is true. And I think we all underestimate how many people we influence. And we have to be more responsible for what we say online, just as we are in person. It's one of those great mysteries to me, how we act differently when we're driving in our car than we do in person. And the same thing happens online. Of course, when many people encounter opposing views from friends, relations, or even complete strangers online, the urge is to convince them of their folly, which can devolve into nasty cyber wars. Tompkins feels that's generally a waste of time. I find that people who never change their minds are the least secure. The reason they won't change their minds is because that's a threat to them, that they have to actually change their minds. But as journalists, I think we also are somewhat to blame here, and that is that we sometimes punish people who change their minds, and we call them flip-floppers, and I think that's unfortunate, too. Who among us hasn't evolved our thinking over the last decades about everything from race relations to gender equity to all sorts of things, right? Angie drobnik Olin is an editor for PolitiFact. She maintains a huge component of all this is how essentially every topic imaginable, including public health policy, is caught up in politics. And we certainly saw that during President Donald Trump's administration. And although the current administration of President Joe Biden is trying to depoliticize it, I think they're only having mixed success. That, she asserts, is also amplifying and intensifying some pre-existing attitudes. There was this element on the Internet even before COVID that was anti-vaccine. And so we've seen that group grow and spread messaging. And as we already heard from Al Tompkins, 
false news travels fast. All of this has led to a significant part of the U.S. population refusing to be vaccinated, wear masks, or take other precautions that in previous times might be considered reasonable. But Nolan also insists there are ways the misinformation bubble can be popped. There's anecdotal evidence that when people know other people who get serious cases of COVID and they're either hospitalized or sadly die, that the people who know those people, that kind of direct experience changes mind. Holland takes an optimistic long view. Generations will change. Circumstances will change. Sometimes an outer enemy is really good at unifying a culture. I don't know what that would be, but certainly history shows that. So you just never know. Things seem really partisan and polarized and intense right now, but nothing lasts forever. As the saying goes, hope springs eternal. Our regular Capitol Report correspondents are Valerie Crowder, Gina Jordan, Lynn Hatter, Regan McCarthy, and Margie Menzel. Thanks also to Sarah Mueller. Technical assistance for Capitol Report comes from Taylor Cox, and I'm Tom Flanagan. Happy New Year, and join us again throughout 2023 for more reports from the state Capitol. Capitol Report is a production of WFSU Public Media in Tallahassee.